This is how we overcome the moving on the kingdom. Reaching to the world's arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we practice Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And uh, we are several episodes in to a series we've been doing this fall about what we call the Mandela Effect in the Bible. Those times when collectively we would all swear we remember that the story goes this way or the character does this. And sometimes the character's not actually there. We misremembered it or we've conflated a bunch of characters together or um, in today's example... We've all forgotten that a character is implied um, and sometimes build whole theologies around the absence of somebody. Uh, let's let's open that can of worms today. Where are we going today, Erica? So today we are talking uh, about Peter's mother-in-law. Now she shows up in, I think, three of the four Gospels, uh, maybe all four of them. I can't remember off the top of my head, um, but she gets like about three verses and she she's there, um, but she's she's unnamed um we don't hear anything really about her besides the fact that when we meet her she is sick jesus comes heals her and then she serves the disciples and then she kind of just disappears into history and we know nothing more about her um and yet we kind of forget because she is only mentioned that one time and peter's wife is never mentioned that peter is definitely married yeah, that, that's a, a that changes in in a lot of ways the the whole casting of the the story of the disciples being called to go follow Jesus and leaving their families, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe just so everybody's clear that we're not making this up. Um, a handy place to see this one story is uh, Mark's telling, because Mark tends to be shorter and cut cut out the details. Um, in Mark chapter one, uh, it's uh, like early on, Jesus uh, has left the synagogue where he's healed one person. And it says they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told him about her at once. He took her by the hand, lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve. So like, that's literally it. We never hear any reference to her later on, even as many times as they might have come back to that town or that village or even to that house. We never get a reference to her again. That's it. But Peter's mother-in-law implies additional family. I, I think what's fascinating to me about this moment is in in the Gospels, because I'm looking at Luke um, as well, and it definitely says they entered Simon's house. Uh-huh. And it, it's his mother-in-law living with them. So, like, correct me if I'm wrong, because I could just be terribly wrong. Usually the woman leaves her family to go live with her new husband and his mm -hmm. family. So something here has happened where the mother-in-law is now living in Simon's house, Simon Peter's house, which says to me that probably he died, like her husband died, mother-in-law's husband father-in-law has died and now she is living in her son-in-law's house yeah. so like this is very extended family which would have been common right, you know it's right. not it's not the nuclear family that we all think of where it's the parents and the minor children and, and their then dog. the minor <laughs> children out it is very much a multi-generational family which now is including simon's in-laws yeah. Not and just his parents. His parents are probably also there and maybe some siblings still and some 
children, some of which may be his, and yeah. maybe some nieces and nephews. Like, it's a very multi-generational family. It's almost like um, we need to picture a different kind of housing as well. I think, and we're sort of used mm -hmm. to you buy a house for a single family and it stays basically the same house forever. It just, you know, you, you move from one house to another when you need as, but in the ancient world, you're talking more like as the family grows, we add rooms onto the same dwelling, you know, we sort of tack additional layers and, you know, rooms up top or as necessary. And so it's almost more like, because I'm in, my kids are at Disney movie age. It's like an Encanto where you got all these generations living in the casita together. Um, and it just sort of is expanded as new family members uh, join the family uh, rather than the family moves to another place or they live in their own house. But yeah, they're all kind of together and the house expands as necessary. Um, and yeah, the, this you've now got not only Simon and Andrew who you know, are, are clearly live close enough that they work together, maybe even part of the same complex, maybe their parents, but now these in-laws, it's a, it's a bustling little you know, uh, enclave there. So one theory that I have heard about the disciples um, and, you know, this is one of those things that we're never going to know for sure. This is just a theory, um, is that the disciples were probably teenagers, mm -hmm. that they would have been young enough to still be working with their fathers. They would have been at the age of apprenticing themselves out, if not working for their father. So, like, it wouldn't have been unusual for them to leave their family yeah. for a time to learn a new trade, um, if they weren't going to work for their fathers. And so like, this would have been an acceptable age for the disciples to leave and do this, but that maybe Peter, Simon Peter is the one that is often singled out as the disciples leader, like the leader amongst the disciples, yeah. because he might have been a few years older right. than the rest of the disciples. Hence why his wife might be mentioned and no one else's wives. Yeah. Because he might have just literally been a few years older and therefore had a little bit more family responsibility. Yeah. But again, this is just a theory. I have no idea if it's true or not. It is on my list of questions to ask God when I make it. <laughs> that, that, but that, that. Again, it changes our whole picture about even what it means when Jesus talks about if anybody wants to come follow me, they have to be prepared to leave behind not just mother and father, but spouse and children like that, that for Simon Peter, at least maybe other disciples as well. Following Jesus wasn't um, one more step on the road to the cookie cutter life of a spouse and two kids and a white picket fence, but they may well have had to choose. I don't get to continue to be with that family all the time because I'm going to be going where Jesus goes. And maybe when they would stop back in Capernaum, you know, they could be there. But like there is something kind of scandalous about leaving behind that role that certainly would have been thrust upon him as provider for family. And now even Andrew is that they're running the business. Like who's taking care of the rest of this family is like this glaring question now. Um, and again, like you don't have to, you don't have to even open those doors or ask those questions if you don't realize that Peter's married. You know, like if if they're all just a bunch of teenagers fending for themselves, oh well, you know that's fine. Jesus is making sure to provide for them. The women who are supporting Jesus are feeding them too. But wait a second, what about the family? Maybe even the kids, and certainly the mother-in-law who is aging and now has to be cared for. It complicates. What is what does it mean to decide that? following Jesus means I can't be at the house all the time. It's, it's like the work-life balance that we're all wrestling with in the 21st century. They were wrestling with it too. There's just so many unknowns because we don't 
get any sort of glimpse about Peter's wife, right? Like she's not even mm-hmm. in this story. She doesn't get voice or like even descriptions or notice of like, what is she doing when her mother, her mother is so sick that they, you know, she might die. Who knows? She's not mentioned even in this story, which always just leads me to wonder, is she still alive? Right. Like, maybe she's not mentioned because she has already died. You know, if she is a young, a young woman married, one of the greatest risks for her is childbirth. And she would have been been childbirthing years. But again, this is all speculation, because for all we know, Peter might be in his 60s. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um. It's it, it's interesting to have to think about stories like this and the people that we want to find out more about. Sometimes we can think, well, maybe they just weren't very important, and that's why there's not nothing mentioned. Sometimes it's because they're so important, at least would have been so well known to the first hearers that they assumed we already knew about them. Like there's there's another moment at the end of Mark's gospel where it talks about um the guy who carries uh jesus cross uh and then makes this mention of you know he was the father of alexander and rufus and you know 21st century readers like um who are alexander and rufus what what why giving us that reference i don't know who that is but clearly when mark writes his readers know who alexander and rufus are like oh my goodness simon of siren was their dad he was there he carried the cross how cool that means this story touches our lives but for us 21st century readers this is one of those names we want to know more about and Mark assumes we already know all those facts. This might be one of those places where, again, some traditions put that one of Mark's sources might well have been an older Peter later on in Rome, um, that it's possible that um, everybody in Mark's community already had known Peter's wife or met her, or he had heard stories about her if she had passed on already. But so we might want more details, and it may be Mark's, Mark might be like, you already know all the stories about her. I'm telling you about Jesus. I've only got so much space, and I've got to get to press here. But it's it's fascinating to imagine there's a whole world of real people who knew these communities, uh, and sometimes the absence is because they knew them so well they don't have to mention anything, and sometimes it's because they don't know anything about them. And that makes sense for Mark because he is that strict to the point, like, let's talk about Jesus. And, and But, like, even in Luke, we don't get more information about his mother, Peter's mother-in-law. And, like, Luke is so detailed about everything. And I, I just, yeah. I wonder how, because the Gospels slowly got written years after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, like as we start to get a couple generations away from the original story as this gets passed down why wasn't that then maybe added in later yeah. i don't know that's just one of those like and to me one honestly, of those when i get to having questions <laughs> you know. yeah yeah to me honestly though it's those places where there are loose ends that aren't tied up that in a weird way gives me a certain amount of um confidence in the reliability of the gospels if that makes sense because like again if the gospel writers felt free to just invent stuff anytime they wanted to they surely would have had those kind of questions and might have you know added things like oh and by the way peter's wife his name so and so and his mother-in-law was this you know like Mm -hmm. but they're they're willing to leave those gaps and to me again that suggests something like they're just handing on the things that were handed on to them. And sometimes that was an eyewitness report. Sometimes it was an oral tradition that had been taught to them by somebody else. Sometimes it might've been documents that were early fragments, you know, before we get the the gospels as we have them, but that they weren't just inventing stuff 
and fiction wise because they wanted answers um yeah. and where there are those gaps to me that honestly makes it feel like oh this is this is evidence that someone wasn't just making stuff up to fill in the gaps in the story but was willing to leave a story with i find it fascinating throughout scripture who gets named and who doesn't get named yeah like you know and there's so many examples that i don't i don't want to get on a rabbit trail and go down that that's not what we're talking about today but it's just interesting like you know peter obviously has a family and peter's pretty important and yet nobody in the family is named yeah yeah more than other people that are not seemingly as important to a story in scripture are named yeah yeah and it's fascinating to me that the sometimes the people we least expect do a better job of remembering names that we might have thought they'd forget. Like, I know sometimes people want to hammer on Paul the Apostle for uh, those passages attributed to Paul about, you know, uh, forbidding women's leadership. But mm-hmm. when you read Paul's letters, the women he names as co-leaders with him in uh, other letters of his, uh, like, clearly he treats Priscilla and Junia and Chloe and Phoebe, all these women, not only as just people he knows and remembers enough to name them, but treats them as these are co-leaders, co-equals, apostles along with me. Um, And so even though sometimes we can peg Paul as the guy who doesn't care about women or forbids women leadership, doesn't seem like that if you actually ask Paul. Um, And on the flip side, um, Mark has forgotten to tell us the name of... um, Jairus's daughter is just Jairus's daughter or Peter's mother-in-law doesn't like there are those moments where like weren't you part of the same early community that valued women's leadership and like Mary Magdalene is the one running from the tomb she's the one entrusted to the good news couldn't you bother to remember some of these names that that certainly says something about who was who in some communities were thought important enough to be remembered yeah I always find it interesting when later church traditions were histories with quotes around it, like <laughs> legends yeah then name some of those people yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so i discovered today when we were preparing for this uh for this podcast i i googled peter's mother-in-law because i wanted to like remind myself like where in the gospels is, is she um she's in three of the four gospels uh but i also found this like website uh church history like website that names her and gives this whole like history on her that is fascinating to me because it's one of those like "Mm, I think some of this is very true but I also think some of it's a stretch and Mm -hmm. I don't think that this is necessarily accurate because I Mm. So I'm going to tell you what this okay. particular church legend is, and I'm going to then say why I think it might be wrong and why I think it might be true. Okay. Um, so according to this website, um, womeninscripture.com, Peter's mother-in-law is Glyphus, the late Alexander's Jewish wife, um, and that Alexander is one of the sons of Herod Agrippa, who is wow. the guy who like killed yeah. John the Baptist. Uh, so, which would make then Peter related by marriage to Herod. Wow. Um, and it's one of those things that makes me go, really? Like, really? <laughs> I feel like this would be important enough to mention in the Bible, but I mm-hmm. also feel like if it was true, it might not be mentioned in the Bible because it would have been unsafe to do so. 
Mm. like to make this very strong connection um mm -hmm. i feel like it is accurate to say that there's somewhere in the bible it mentions that there were family members of herod who were followers of jesus yep yep like that that is true and so like this is where some people think that that might be the connection that the family member that was related to herod who was follower of christ was Glyphus, Peter's mother-in-law. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So yeah, it's it's like there are these times when we get crumbs in the Gospels. Like yeah, somebody from Herod's household is a follower of Jesus or is married to someone who's a follower of Jesus, and making that leap to oh, that was Peter's mother-in-law. To me, like this is um, I'm just gonna go full on nerd here. Um, to me, this is like the challenge that. Um, the post Disney Star Wars universe has when they're like a billion different uh, spin-off TV shows and characters. And instead of saying these are all new characters, cause we're exploring a whole new, like, Nope, we got to find a way to bring cameos of that one person you saw in one episode of an earlier movie or something. We're bringing them back. And it turns out they're the mother-in-law of this person, or this is a former mm -hmm. roommate of this guy. Like it just feels like, can, can we not let the world be big enough that not everybody is connected to each other? Um, and when you're making a fictional world, uh, it feels like, sure, you can invent whatever you want, but here in the biblical world, it seems like, boy, that would be awfully too convenient if all these characters, all these stories like intertwined at the end, it it's, is a big world after all. It kind of reminds me of that like meme, or there's like this photo that often goes with memes of like this guy with like crazy big like eyes as he's gesturing to like this evidence board behind him where all of the red strings are like <laughs> yeah yeah Charlie Day yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 like not everything is all interconnected that way yeah yeah right and, and most of the time in fairness to the New Testament most of the time there the the at least the, the scripture re, uh writings the the things that made it into the new testament avoid that kind of look how neat to tie a little bow i've tied on everything there mm -hmm. are loose ends and they leave things in loose ends um and there are times when mark gives us almost intentionally mysterious figures without telling us who they are like um the night of jesus arrest uh a young man <laughs> runs away naked from the scene and like nobody else mentions this and it's like hold on if you're gonna bother to mention it like don't bury the lead mark tell us who is this why is this important um or if it's not important at all why include this at all like, this is the central night of our faith is jesus betrayal and arrest and whatever why do we need to mention the streaker in the garden um and like again mark doesn't seem to have a problem with leaving loose ends like that and again peter's mother-in-law is another case in point that maybe as a helpful rule of thumb sort of to the side of our topic for today when we find that impulse to want to uh, make neat tied uh, bows on our characters or uh, you know to have neat little tidy explanations for characters or things in the bible that may be more about our need for closure or our need for you know tidiness rather than um what actually is going on or being said or taught in the bible and sometimes we have to acknowledge we've got that impulse we want everything to be all neatly tied up and sometimes we don't get those answers i remember when Until i was in... we're in front of god god and get to say hey god what's up with this yeah, yeah, yeah. Mysterious but like, streaker. Who is Peter's mom and mother-in-law and wife? And what is the deal? It, it, but I mean, like, I think I think that that even though that's tongue in cheek, like there's something important about, yeah, one day there will be clarity. But for now, a lot of this life of faith is learning to live with a certain amount of ambiguity and being okay with it rather than I must have clarity and certainty at all times. 
but being okay. There's some things we're not going to have answers for. And pretending that you have answers is not more responsible and certainly not demanding and indoctrinating and making it dogmatic that everybody has to have the same answers I do when sometimes we don't have that data and we got to live with that's okay. I think that's an important thing. Like it's interesting how over and over and over again, uh, theologians and reformers made a point of saying the scriptures contain what's necessary uh, to know, but they nobody would ever would ever claim. I don't think responsibly the Bible answers every question we will ever bring, mm-hmm. um, and that's important to say that when when Scripture doesn't answer something, we got to be okay with this one. Does, we don't have an answer for, and so we better not make this a deal breaker for are you in or out? You know, if if it's a question we don't have an answer for. I mean, that's the whole point of faith is just that trust that okay, I might not know the answer, but God's got a plan in all of this and, and God put this together for whatever reason and we have to trust that. And I think if if we had all those answers, then we could put God into a box. Sure. Sure. You know, and, and not having those answers, even for something as small as Peter's mother in law. Like this is yeah, we're doing a whole episode about this, but like it this is really not a huge thing, except for the very curious minds and the nerdy minds that we are. <laughs> but um, yeah, although, and maybe this is a place to ask, like, okay, so now that it's clear, you read the passage in Mark or Luke or Matthew, Peter has a mother-in-law, what difference does it make? Does this affect or does this put any guardrails on our faith or theology um, to know this, uh, that he had a mother who, or and a mother-in-law and a wife who hasn't talked about? Or is this just random Bible trivia for church nerds? I think it's important because... It helps give us a better sense of the disciples to okay. like fully grasp what it means that they went, they, they left their families mm-hmm. to yeah. go do this thing called ministry, but they still had family. And when we say they left their family, we don't mean that they like completely left yeah. because they're visiting, they're staying right. with yeah. Simon Peter's family. Right. So like, it's not like, oh, you're never going to see me again. I'm abandoning you. It's no, I'm going to go and do this thing. I'm going to do this thing that is balancing my vocation and my family. It's it's all of those things. And especially, I think, knowing that Peter had a wife and a family, I think is really important because, like, for a lot of, throughout history, Peter is the one who, like, we're kind of supposed to follow. Like, you know, we're following he's Jesus. Seen a, but like, he's seen as sort of a template, though. That's fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he's kind of part of the reason why the Catholic Church doesn't let their priests get married, even though yeah. he's married. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, so yeah, that's an important detail that that like if we take this detail in the gospel seriously, Peter has a mother-in-law. Peter is married, and Peter is seen in some ways as an archetype for. Christian community leadership, what we might call pastors, or if you have more hierarchy, things like that. And if Peter is seen as, as later Roman Catholic tradition will have him, the first bishop of Rome and the first pope, um, then like, wait a second, he was clearly married. Um, It's interesting how later on uh, Catholicism insisted on priests being celibate uh, when Peter, who is the archetype, was married. That feels like forcing something on uh, others that Peter himself didn't require and didn't live by. Um, and maybe that also opens up that there's really a sort of variety in the New Testament about uh, questions of marriage and marriage status, right? You get voices like Paul in the New Testament, who to the best of our knowledge, 
certainly talks like someone who's single and has chosen the single life and will advocate to others, hey, I wish everybody had the freedom I had because I'm single and I'm not tethered down to family or change of diapers or whatever. But if you need to be married, that's fine. And on the flip side, you've got Peter, who is clearly, you know, uh, married, has a mother-in-law and nobody seems to have a problem with that. There's a variety of voices on that from within the scriptures rather than here's the one cookie cutter model that you all have to fit in. To me, that seems really important in an era like ours, because every so often, I was just mentioned before we started recording, I saw a kerfuffle on some circles of theological Twitter <laughs> where some uh, pastor who's confident he knows an awful lot of answers, uh, and you can sure bet it was uh, a male, uh, wrote about how um, it's sinful to be permanently single and that instead everybody should be looking to get, again, married and have kids, and that's what the model is, that's what all Christians should be aiming for. And lots of people have replied back, wait a second, how about Jesus? How about Paul? How about Paul <laughs> mm-hmm. saying, I wish everybody were single? Like, so like that, like it's it's easy to make uh, the nuclear family into an idol and to be like, everybody has to fit yeah. this cookie cutter because sometimes we treat, I think this is one of those ways that culture war infects Christianity and where it becomes Christianity necess- uh, necessitates your family has to look like this, your relationships have to look like this, and if they don't, you're doing it wrong, you're not a good Christian, where the New Testament itself is like, well, it turns out there's a lot of variety here. There's people who were married and their spouses have died. There's people who are intentionally single. There's the Ethiopian eunuch. There's Peter and his mother-in-law, assuming his wife, but in a multi-generational family household. Like, there's a lot of different varieties, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't seem to blush at any of those, Um even when he confronts the woman who's been married five times and is now living with somebody else, doesn't say shame on you, but it's like, I know your story. You've been you've been in a bunch of relationships and none of them worked out. And he still welcomes her. Like that Jesus doesn't get hung up on, and neither does the early Christian community hung up on a variety of pictures of what family looked like. And yet here we are in the 21st century, still having to deal with those voices who think they know better than God. So it's weird right. to think. Oh, go ahead. When when you were telling us about that before before we started, Steve, I just as the single person in yeah. the podcast, you know, it just frustrates me to no end. Not that I don't want to be married. Um, I, I still feel that desire. I still feel that's God's calling for me. I just haven't found the right person yet. And that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I trust God's timing and all that. But like my churches have always tried <laughs> every church I've served, like Oh, I know somebody or I know, somebody, <laughs> you know, and I don't think that my single male colleagues necessarily get the same Oh yeah, treatment um, or at least they can get away with it a little bit longer. You yeah. know, yeah. I'm 40. Like they're, they want to get me and I don't think it's because they want me to have kids or anything like that. You know, that's a whole nother story, but it just, I, <laughs> it's interesting that I've had parishioners in every church. Like, and thankfully it's not been like their grandsons. Like, <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> I've heard that yeah. story too. But like you know, it, it's a family or it's a friend or something. And they're like, "Oh yeah, I know this person," and and it's just like, really, like God will work it out when God wants to work it out. Yeah, need, yeah. Thanks for the help. I appreciate it. But like, yeah, I, God's yeah. got a plan. Yeah, yeah. And I I think it's it's difficult for maybe for all of us to some degree, but difficult to accept that 
what we may be comfortable with personally from our own experience doesn't have to be what everybody else does. That's a hard thing. And it's hard to say mm -hmm. that God can be okay with variety because we, we're so much more used to, no, there's got to be one pattern one way and this is how it is for everybody to instead go, maybe the God who made the infinite diversity of creatures and creation in the universe in our on our planet alone and the infinite diversity in the universe in all sorts of other ways, maybe that God is okay with, you don't all have to have the same 2.5 kids, white picket fence and a dog. Um, and yet so often our religion has been co-opted to Christianity is primarily about how to get your life to fit this cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is this is an interesting case study, whereas other other times in the series, we've said, well, interesting fact, turns out we're wrong, but it doesn't make a big difference. To me, there are some important guardrails that recognizing Peter is married puts up on our theology and practice that it prevents us from saying everybody has to follow this exact pattern for marriage and family. No. And also, we certainly don't want to start forbidding things that Peter himself was clearly uh, OK with. Um, and yeah, how, how much uh, of our sense of the disciples is is. Uh, reshaped by considering at least some of them were married and that their following Jesus was somehow both compatible, but also maybe meant that they had to live with the whispers around town of he used to have a fine upstanding job. He was a fisherman and now he's left to follow this rabbi. I mean, like that sometimes that would have been the the scandal is that they they uh, you know weren't doing something respectable. They're you know wandering around with his homeless itinerant religious teacher. But all those are part of the, the New Testament story. Well, then uh, we've got some more cases of a Mandela effect in the Bible to take a look at. We invite you to join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all.